The word of God from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Laura. Would you guys remain standing, please? Well, um, let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these psalms. Thank you for how they shape our hearts. This morning, we ask that you'd make us soft, open the eyes of our hearts, that we would know you, love you, obey you, serve you, and be loved by you. For we pray this to the glory of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, fam. Well, good morning. Um, if you're new, a special welcome to you guys. This summer, as you know, or maybe don't, we have been spending time in the Psalms. And, um, and so we're on Psalm 121. Now, uh, a book I've mentioned to you guys before, in 2007, uh, Harvard University Press produced what I would consider one of the most important books that have been written in the last 20 years or so. It's called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. And uh, it's, in essence, it describes how the West was secularized, um, how faith and religion has been, has retreated from, you know, public spaces or whatnot. And it's interesting because 500 years ago, um, the imagination of your, of your average person, it would have been difficult or really virtually impossible to imagine a world in which God did not exist. Fast forward modern times, now it is, dare I say it, virtually impossible to believe in God. You know, what happened? What changed? And there's, a, you know, Charles Taylor answers this. I mean, it's, it's quite its home. But if I could uh, whittle it down, I would say it's how we see life. It's the questions that we ask, the, the meta questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Uh, when a properly secular person asks those sets of questions, what emerges is not necessarily a coherent story. Uh, they would, in fact, say that stories are just uh, social constructions, vestiges from the past that want to oppress you and keep you in your um, darkness or something like that. And so they would respond differently. They would say, hey, listen, humans are just the product of millions of violent chemical reactions plus a few mutations over time. And so our lives don't really have transcendent meaning, maybe localized, constructed meaning, but not transcendent meaning. 
And because when we die, those chemical bonds that keep us together, they'll give way to entropy, and we'll lose energy, and we'll just cease to exist. Now, that explanation, that response is a story. It's just not a good one because it does not give the storyteller purpose. It doesn't give us meaning. There's no script where we can see ourselves in it saying, hey, I was made for this role, you see. And in fact, it suggests really kind of under the guise of science uh, that there is no true ultimate meaning in the universe. And this sociological or religious, I would, might call it, development um, over the last 500 years is a contradiction to the way in which humans are depicted in the Bible. You know, the, the brilliance of the Bible is that it provides profound answers to our core questions of where did we come from, why are we here, where are we going? And it answers those questions through a story that fills us with incredible purpose, and it assures us that our lives are not random at all. And arguably, the primary metaphor from the Bible that describes our life is a journey. It's a journey. We are pilgrims. We're not nomads. We're not wanderers. We are going somewhere. We are traveling to a better land. That's how humans are depicted in the Bible. That's the narrative that we see. And so that rendering of life, that we're pilgrims, is actually both intellectually and existentially more satisfying because it helps us make sense of our lives and to make sense of the things that are actually most important in our lives. And so the Bible sees us as pilgrims. And so today, we are going to study a psalm for travelers, for pilgrims. And it's not just that the Bible calls us travelers or pilgrims. It actually gives us nourishment and encouragement for the journey that we're on. And so Psalm 121, as Jason had mentioned, it's in this section of the Psalms called the Psalms of, of Ascent. From Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. Now, you know, there's 150 Psalms, and they're all kind of organized a little bit differently. But that section... Um, is what I call like a mixtape for your road trip. You remember mixtapes? Of course you do, right? Where you, you know, you, we had cassette tapes and you recorded the cool songs that made sense of where you're going. That's what this is like. See, because Israel each year had to make three trips to Jerusalem for these religious festivals. And so what's the mixtape? The Psalms of Ascent. And so 121 is a song about God being our keeper our watchman, our guardian for this trip. Now, I don't know how that hits you. I don't know if you think you need to be kept, but weird and unexpected things happen on this journey of life. See, we, we thought we wrote the script of how our life and how this journey was going to unfold. And it was okay until it wasn't. And with a single headline or a single phone call in the middle of the night, maybe a failed test or a failed pregnancy test or a medical examination, with just one in a moment, what we learned was this, is that we are not in control of our lives. 
The illusion of control is gone. And guess what? Turns out we need a keeper. We need a watchman. We thought we could keep ourselves, but we have woken from that dream world because you are not your own keeper. So this life is a journey, and we need a keeper as we travel. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to use a song from this mixtape. And what we're going to find is that, strangely, this ancient song is so relevant for modern travelers. Six times in the psalm, it's going to repeat that God is our keeper. And so as we study Psalm 121, we're going to ask, how does our keeper help us on this journey? And And what we're going to find are these two implicit uh, travel advisories. Uh, And here they are. This will be our outline. Travel advisory one, be careful with the cliffs. And then travel advisory number two, be careful with the elements. The elements. So with that, let's begin with the first advisory. Be careful with the cliffs. You guys know that in my former life, I was in the Air Force, and I participated in this training called Combat Survival Training. And basically what it is, it's training for airmen, uh, and it simulates like you're on a plane in enemy territory, and your plane goes down, and it's it's preparing you to get out safely, or if you do get caught by the enemy, how to survive that. And so I was dropped in the middle of thousands upon thousands of acres in the mountains of Colorado with nothing but a topographical map and a compass. And the goal is to find a checkpoint which represents safety. And this checkpoint was really really just a glow stick, (laughs) right? And you got to find this glow stick without being caught by the enemy or these aggressors, as they call them. Now, on my map, the glow stick is marked, but I don't know where I am, all right? Because I was just dropped there, blindfolded, basically. I don't know where I am. So... How do you know where you are? What you do is you look to the mountains. You look to the mountains. You look to the peaks, and you begin to triangulate using topography. And and that's how you identified where you are. And as you traveled, you only really wanted to travel in the dark because, you know, presumably the bad guys are asleep at night. It's easier to travel undetected by them. But be warned, it's creepy. (laughs) Like, it's creepy. Like, traveling through who knows where in the middle mountains. You don't know exactly where you are, and it's dark. I thought so many times, I am so glad that God does not sleep because I would die. Right? And so we would count our steps to know how many miles we traveled, and we'd be referencing the peaks until we got to where we were hoping to get. Now, why do I begin with that story? Do you know how the pilgrim knows where he is going? He sets his heading by looking to the hills, to the mountains. See, Jerusalem is situated in the Judean hill country. So no matter where you were coming from in all of Israel, your trip was upward. So you look to the mountains and you travel in that direction. And so that's how come the singer begins. Look at verse 1. I lift my eyes to the hills. But then there's this clarification, right? Well, where does my help come from? And so the answer is provided in verse 2. Well, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So Jerusalem, it's sometimes called like Zion or Mount Zion. That is the hill that's being referenced here. 
the temple mount is what is in view because where the temple is, God's immediate presence is. Now, why is that significant? Because as you traveled to the temple mount, there were actually other hills on your path, you see, on your journey. And so how are these hills? Which hill? How is that ge generically the hills? How is that clarified? Well, it's rhetorically asked, where does my help come from? Why ask that question? It's because in ancient Israel, there was all kinds of pagan worship in the hills, on the path, on your way to the Temple Mount. Every pilgrim knew that competing pagan altars were in the hills. So if you're traveling and you get bad weather or marauders or whatever it is, do you need protection? Well, you know, just get off the path. Stop at some random hill. Make a sacrifice to some random idol. You want company? You want protection? Well, there's a deity. There's an idol for that. Pick your flavor. Pick your protection. So temple and cultic prostitution even were in the hills. They were like these big billboards, you know, like exit, you know, exit 225, and you get what you were looking for, you know? And if you're just miserable enough on your journey as you travel, you might actually be seduced to turning off and exiting. But beware, travel advisory number one, it is not what you think it is. It's a cliff. And you need someone to tell you what's there to keep you from falling off that cliff into your spiritual death. Where does protection come from these seductive hills. Verse 3, look. He will not let your foot be moved. Now this language of foot slipping, it's actually a double entendre, right? So if you're climbing up a hill and there's like gravel, you might slip back. So he's going to keep your foot from slipping. But also feet slipping is also a metaphor for what? For sinning. So it's, it's, it's him who's keeping you. And then look, the second part of verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. Now, God not sleeping here is actually a reference to 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm not sure if you remember that story, but there's this terrific story of Elijah versus 450 of the prophets of Baal. And they're kind of having this contest to see whose God or gods would act and who would answer their prayers first. So there they are, these two competing sacrifices, and Elijah on one side and the prophets of Baal on the other side. And so the, the prophets of Baal, they begin, right? They begin crying out, right? They're, they're screaming up into heaven. They're making these sacrifices. They're beating their chests. And like nothing is happening. And so like Elijah's like, are we done here? Like what's going on? And he says, uh, maybe your gods are indisposed. Maybe they're in the bathroom. And he goes, well, or maybe they're just sleeping and they just need to be awoken. Like he's like taunting them. And that's how come there's this reference of their gods who sleep. But then Elijah says, you know, hey, let's do something. Let's make this hard. Pour a bunch of water on my sacrifice. Let's just, let's keep this interesting, guys. Let's keep this fair. And they do that. And then Elijah prays. And God consumes his sacrifice in this, in this blazing fire. It's incredible. See, because our God does not sleep. He hears. He watches. And so on this highway of life, as we travel, 
Where do we look for help? Which set of hills? Where do you, what, who, or precisely who do you expect is going to keep you? Now listen, I, Denver Press, I know we don't make sacrifices on altars in pagan hills or whatever. I know that's not what's going on. But we do look for help in all the wrong places. We need our eyes to be redirected or refocused. In 1 and 2, the, the verses, you'll notice, are in first person. Like, I lift up my eyes. My help comes from the Lord. But then really starting in verse 3 to the very end, you'll notice that the rest of the song is in the second person. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Now, why do I mention this grammatical shift? The primary way, here's why, the primary way that we feel God's support and keeping is through one another. It's you. Like we are singing the song together. We're, we're speaking these words over each other. We're reminding one another. We need people to do that in our lives. You know, I read this story about this kid in Texas. His name is Lee a great kid, grew up in church, faithful in youth group. Uh, Lee started getting sick and, like, real sick. And he ends up being hospitalized. And it turns out, age 16, he has Crohn's disease, and it was intense. And uh, he's in the hospital. His, his parents had to leave for just a bit, maybe get food or something like that. So he's alone in his hospital room. And the doctor comes in, and he's kind of a young doctor, not a lot of, like, bedside manner. And the doctor walks in, you know, picks up his chart, and, you know, looks at the folder, and he goes, Crohn's, huh? He goes, you're going to have a hard and sometimes a miserable life. And then he kind of just puts down the folder and, like, walks out and leaves. And he didn't know that the, how painful those words would be. And so Lee is crushed. And it wasn't long before his grief turns into anger. Because he's a good kid, right? He, he's the one who honored his parents. He's, he's faithful to his church and to the Lord. But now he's mad, and he's on the brink of taking his eyes off of the Lord. He's like, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of staying on this hard journey of life? And so, you know, his father begins to notice what's happening in his son's heart. And he says these words. He says, Lee... Your mother and I love you so much. And we are going to be next to you every step of the way. But son, I can't beat this for you. You are going to have to take this to Jesus. You're going to have to take this to Jesus. See, in that moment, his father became a fellow pilgrim fellow traveler, pointing him, reminding him of the truth. And you need that. Like, you need someone to point you to take it to Jesus. Because you're not strong enough to do this journey alone. You're not. You know, it's one of the reasons why Denver Press, like, pushes small groups. Our small groups are not just, like, a model that we just think is cute. We actually are trying to create a place to be able to say, you need to take this to Jesus. He will keep you. It's a place where you're noticed. 
a place where truth is spoken over you as we travel together. That's why we do that. Let's transition, though, to our second travel advisory. Is it me? Am I doing something? Does this sound like, okay, all right, here we go. It just sounds like screaming at me. All right, I hope you guys are liking this, okay. Second travel advisory. So first is warning, there's seductive hills. The second is um, look, uh, look out for harmful elements. So um, let me revisit some of my uh, stories from combat survival training here again. So once we, um, you know, remember they drop us off, we've got to figure out where we are. We had to get to our target undetected by the aggressors, by the bad guys, and when we're dropped off in the middle of who knows where, we have no food or no water. So in addition to like the aggressors, the elements become extremely dangerous, right? The sun was torturous, um, and, and hiking miles with no water is a terrible idea, so that one of the first things you have to do is locate a ravine or a river, and we'd go down there, and we have like these little empty flasks, and we'd fill it up with river water, and then we have to put like iodine tablets in them and taste terrible, but you don't want to get Girardia. That would be a terrible idea. And because uh, you realize very quickly that the sun is not on your side. And so sunstroke was a very real problem. But not only is the sun dangerous, but also the phenomena of being moonstruck. So remember, very rarely could we travel during the day, so we were always moving at night. But when you're moving through like unchartered mountains at night, and when all you could see were like the shadows being cast by the moon in the middle of who knows where, I swear to you guys, your mind starts playing weird tricks on you. I mean, like every branch I looked at, I was sure it was like a snake or like... Every shadow, I was like, there's a bad guy who's going to jump out and, like, kill me. Or, like, if there's, like, a dark spot in the ground, you're just sure, like, it's a pit, and you're going to fall into it and crash to your death. It's just, like, it just really messes with you. So the moon shadows start messing with your mind. Now, the word moon in the Latin and in Spanish also is luna. And it's for, you guys know we get the word lunatic from that. So being moonstruck is, like, going crazy from disproportionate anxiety or overly exaggerated fears. Everything seems worse than it actually is. Now bring this to your attention because as we travel in this pilgrimage, God is going to keep us from these harmful elements. Look at verse 5. It says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Right. So pr protection from this oppressive sun. And then verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. So God keeps us from sunstroke, but also from being moonstruck. So if the sun in, 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 here in the psalm represents hardship, moonstruck represents an irrational fear of hardship. And we need, frankly, protection from both. Now hear me, because um, y'all know me. Like, I'm not I am not here to make light of um, the hard parts of your life. It was just this week, actually, I spent several hours in a hospital of this precious woman who I love very much, um, but she's in her, final, in her final days. 
And uh, her faith is so encouraging to me. She is expecting to be, and she is longing to be with her Savior. But it doesn't make these last days easier. It's hard. And for the family. If the truth, though, that God is with you, when the sun is beating down, if that truth doesn't bring relief to the severity of life's challenges, challenges, then these things, these moments, can really crush you and send you spinning into despair. You need shade from the sun, relief. So this song, Psalm 121, says that God is their shade, and his presence can take away the, severe, the severity or the desperation of really hard things. Um, and you probably don't know this name, uh, but there's a woman. Her name is Susan Wheeler. This happened in the mid-2000, like right around 2005. Um, Susan is in just years of faithful ministry. She's touched so many people's lives. She's led so many people to, to the Lord. Turns out she gets a very severe diagnosis of cancer. And so she, of course, had to get like chemotherapy and radiation, and, and it just it didn't look good. But after several years of fighting and losing her hair and all the pain of the treatments, she did. She beat it, and the cancer, in fact, did go into remission. And so there she, you know, she had rang the bell or whatever. She's now with her family, and they're celebrating. But there's kind of a soberness to her, and she says to her family, she says, I am afraid that God is preparing me for more suffering. And that was July. And sure enough, December that same year, she's getting her family ready for church. They were caravanning. They were taking two different cars. So the car she was in, she goes out, and a foolish young driver turns the corner, hits her straight on, and ends up snapping her neck, and she's paralyzed for the rest of her life. And here's what I want you to know about Susan Wheeler. If you were to go to her house, you would find two things. First, you would find her in a wheelchair worshiping the Lord. And you would find a plaque that says, whatever my God ordains is right. Like, she believed Psalm 121 that God was still keeping her even while she's in a wheelchair worshiping. Whatever my God ordains is right. And like we're invited into that faith through this psalm. But God's care and his keeping is not just like 12 to 6. It's all day and night. It's, it's also protection from the moon. If, you let, if you'll let him, God can offer you relief from exaggerated fears, too. And, and man, we need this. Like, I have, a, like, Michael Edwards actually helps me with this all the time. He's like, hey, it's not what you think it is, right? It's when I get caught up in rhetoric or whatever. You know, a friend to kind of talk you off, to sober you up. And, and, and it's not me. It's you, too. Like, the news cycles can drive us Crazy, Like, we can begin to obsess about it. We're inundated with news, and it makes us feel like the sky is falling, right? 
And, and I see this, like every election cycle, we lose our collective minds. The algorithm of fear is so good at making you scared and angry. And every election cycle, you can see an entire country, and I'm talking both the left and the right, everyone becomes moonstruck. And our children, who don't have a lot of life experience, they begin to see these, the way we talk and our exaggerated fears, and they see the fears of their parents as being something that's normalized. And it's actually quite emotionally damaging and spiritually deforming and, and disfiguring. And, and we're always sending them like mixed messages. We're like, hey, don't eat that Twinkie, right? Like GMOs, carbs. But here, here's, a, here's a smartphone for my eight-year-old, you know? We are moonstruck. We're fearful about all the wrong things. But Christians armed with Psalm 121, have a real opportunity to be preserving a non-anxious presence in a society that has gone mad, that is anxious. We get to model, like in a crazy time, that Christians are wildly non-anxious and for the other. We get to model that we can live lives free, free from inordinate fear, that we can actually see clearly, not because we're smarter than anyone else in the world, not because we're better than them, but simply we can see because our eyes are lifted up to the hills, to the hill. This life is a journey. It has really dangerous moments, but we have a keeper. And this song gives us this travel advisory. Be careful with the elements. Hardships are coming. The sun will beat you down, but the Lord's presence is your shade. But also, the, the, the disproportionate, the inordinate fear will creep in too, and it'll, it'll make you moonstruck. And how do we keep our misguided fears in check? Like, how do we do that? Do we look to the news? What are we looking to? Do we look to the news? Do we look around? Do we look inside? No, we look up to the hills. We look up not around. See that? See how this song can shape us? All right, let me conclude. So Psalm 121 reminds us, right, as I begin, we are, we are pilgrims on a journey, and it tells us that God is our keeper as we travel, and as we travel, there are these two implicit travel advisories. Watch for the cliffs, beware of the elements. One of the interesting things about Psalm 121 is that there is not one single command. Like, there are no imperatives. Like, it's not telling you to do anything. It's a traveling song filled with some of the most beautiful, grandiose promises. It's so beautiful that it, these promises are so beautiful, they, they lift your eyes for you, draws your eyes upward. And the very last part of the song says this. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, if you haven't noticed, the entire psalm from verse 1 to 6 has all been in the present tense. And then there's a shift in verses 7 and 8. It switches to the future tense. The Lord will keep you. Did you notice that? 
Like, what does that mean? Like, really? Really? Like, God is going to keep us from all evil? He's going to keep my life? That there's going to be no tragedy? Like, what is it even saying? Is anyone here convinced that God is our perfect keeper? Yeah, me neither. It's really hard to believe. Those promises don't seem to align with the experiences that I have in my life. This is not God as I've always experienced him. I wonder if it's because we see God like a genie. I wonder if I see God like a genie. If we begin to see God like a genie, it creates this kind of false dichotomy. Either God is with us, and I have no trouble, which means God is never with us, because we have trouble, or we have trouble, and therefore God has left, or he's, he's looked in the other direction or something. But listen, that's not what Psalm 121 is trying to tell us. Of course, the sun will be hot. Of course, the gravel will be slippery, it will be grueling, and it will be dangerous. But the promise is this, that no injury, no accident or distress will have power over us or will separate us from God's purposes to us in that moment. And I'm and I need you to believe that. You must believe that. Our only serious mistake is to believe that God got bored looking after us, or that he's mad, or that he fell asleep at the wheel, or that he looked away. And why can I look at you straight-faced? Listen, I've lost people too. I know what it's like to have a friend go down on a plane outside of Baghdad leaving behind a wife and a kid. I know pain. I'm not here just telling you these things, whitewashing the pains of this life. Why is it, though, I can look you in the eyes and tell you to believe this so confidently? It's because when Psalm 121 tells us that God is our keeper, it's actually this echo of this story at the very beginning of the Bible. It's almost a response to it. Do you remember that crazy story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4? Cain kills his brother Abel, and the Lord asks Cain, he says, where's your brother? And he says, what, am I my brother's keeper? And that's a rhetorical question. Like, no, I am not the keeper of my brother. But Jesus will pick up that question, and he'll answer it differently, won't he? He picks up the mantle, and Jesus likens himself to a shepherd, and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the keeper of the sheep. Yeah, I am my brother's keeper, and I will lay down my life. And he did. And his death secures our life. And the anguish 
and pain and even death of Jesus means that your anguish and pain and even death can never be separated from his. And there's resurrection. Jesus will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Amen.